Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Peter Appleton. Peter is the Chief Executive of Vivacity, Culture and Leisure Trust in Peterborough, Cambridgeshire. Peter, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Peter. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to understand your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we just look at that word leader in isolation for a second to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates overall. Certainly. Um, Certainly for me, I've always taken the view of of the leadership role very much is about empowering other people. And certainly within Vivacity, that's what I've tried to do in the two years I've been with Vivacity, where we have some very capable, skillful and professional employees in various disciplines. And my mission has always been to encourage them to develop to their absolute maximum potential, that I don't believe one person can lead an organisation. They can be a figurehead. They can ultimately make it be the decision maker, but the strength of any organization, the strength of a good leader is the development of its people. And the people, you know, the more people we can actually get on board and are competent and capable of delivering the future, then that actually adds strength to an organization. And I think it's very clear, particularly in this current climate, that, you know, the leadership role has to be there for staff that may be feeling uncertain, vulnerable, and equally customers and, and the services that we represent. It's been a very challenging time for this generation of leaders, hasn't it, the COVID-19 pandemic? Because as you rightly say there, Peter, a lot of people will be looking to their business and organisational leaders for that little bit of much-needed reassurance during this time. And amid all of the uncertainty and sometimes lack of clarity, if you will, um, over maybe guidelines that some feel might be there, um, it can be difficult keeping the communication channels open and just keeping that much-needed reassurance flowing, can't it? Absolutely. And one of the things that we've done in Vivacity is that we've got 98% of our staff have been furloughed since the, since March, towards the end of March. And it has been difficult to ensure we can actually communicate with staff, given that there has been so much uncertainty. But one of the things that I absolutely believe in as part of the leadership role is to be honest with people. So we have been very honest about the situation. If we don't know the answer to something, as many others don't, when there's a great deal of uncertainty, we've said we don't know the answer. We can't second-guess things, you know, and we can't put too much energy into second-guessing what may or may not happen until there's a bit more certainty and then we begin to scenario plan. And equally, you know, throughout that difficult period, we have had to sort of reassure um, our staff and customers that we're doing our utmost to protect services and uh, their roles and their jobs. You know, and clearly us taking advantage of the government's job retention scheme, the furloughing, like many others, has been a wonderful sort of uh, contribution to try and retain people's jobs. And with regards to how 
Vivacity has had to adapt to the current pandemic situation on the whole. Um, what has been going on behind the scenes? Because I can imagine it has posed a few significant challenges with, of course, wholesale closures. Absolutely. I mean, all of our services effectively closed on the 20th of March on government instruction. So effectively, all of our income generating uh, activities were shut down from that point. So we've been able to offer um, some online opportunities for customers, residents, and maybe some new customers as well. You know, there's no charge for, for the, you know, we've been trying to uh, occupy people in a positive way during this very difficult time, you know, by putting some online uh, activities, not necessarily just physical activities, but creative activities as well, where people can access their We've also created um, a link to Ancestry as well through our archive um, team to enable people to meaningfully occupy their time during the lockdown, as well as uh, our books online, which have been great. And a number of our uh, physical activity instructions have taken it on their own back without recourse to the company, without risking anything um, do with the furlough situation, they've actually created their own online classes for some of their customers because they are dedicated to their customers. And I think that's a very commendable thing for them to do. But it has been very difficult. You know, we have had to um, maintain over 20 sites, each of them different. We also have to look after some sheep at an archaeological park as well. So we've got to maintain their health and welfare. And we're managing buildings. We've still got compliance tests to do, particularly where we've got a number of pools, ensuring that the water quality is still correct. On the, the moment we would be allowed to open up again, we'd be ready from that perspective to go. You know, clearly there's a, there's a lot more that has to go into the preparation building, uh, customer confidence and all the social distancing measures we'd have to put in place. But at least we, we will know the building will be ready to go. Uh, the building won't fail. And clearly, you know, through this sort of three months or so of lockdown, we've had to manage the security of buildings as well because there's been no uh, paying customers going through the door, which has left them a little bit vulnerable. But thankfully, I think the, the wider public have responded very well to that and have been on board with everything we've, we've tried to do for the services and maintain you know, which are essentially their assets, because they're the customers. Mm, I think that's exactly right, Peter. And um, with regards to, of course, COVID secure guidelines, there's been a great deal of debate about the clarity and transparency of those throughout the pandemic and also going into the uh, the future. Have you been satisfied throughout this um, situation that you've known what's been expected of you at any one time and you continue to be so? Or has it been a little bit more complicated than that in your view? It has been complicated because, you know, it's a very much a moving piece. You know, I think the government have been clear about that, that, you know, they will begin to ease uh, restrictions and lockdown regulations when it's safe and appropriate to do so. So, you know, more recently we've we've heard about the social distancing measures moving to one metre, whereas pre- previously we were looking at two metres. You know, so those, those things begin to change change the way you'd plan for operations. The one thing that's clearly going to be uncertain is just, you know, the capacity will be reduced in all of our venues. 
and the longer-term impact on revenues would be a concern. And what I was interested to ask as well, Peter, uh, given the sort of nature of um, working uh, moving towards the remote side of things during this time and the fact that that's brought up a few questions, in both your organisation, Vasti, and in the wider world, what role do you think the office is going to play in the future of work? I think things are gonna things are gonna be different, you know, and it's it's not just our sector, it's I think it's retail. I think we've all got used to shopping online a whole lot more. So retail recovery, the high street recovery will be challenged undoubtedly. Um you know, the world will be different. We should be looking to more um, a blended mix of offers. Now we had previously offered some online um activities but I do believe that we will probably need to invest more in, a, in the online solutions, whether they be it for fitness classes, whether it be for more online books, you know, you know, and, and things we've stopped doing, you know, because of the circumstances over time, not necessarily COVID-related. You know, nobody goes to the library anymore and really borrows a DVD. It doesn't happen because you can download all that. So you, you begin to kind of change and adapt to a changing world. And I think what we are entering to is a very much changed world. People's behaviours will be very different. And I think for some time, customer confidence will be um, at the foremost of our minds because we do need to bring customers back into the services as best we possibly can and ensuring that they are safe, reassured, and all of that will probably take some additional resources at the same time our capacities will be reduced and if we think about what the next sort of 12 to 18 months might hold for yourself and for vivacity peter what do you envision for that time as we move into the next stage of the pandemic and begin to look to a more long-term future under the new normal well we've um had to also we've almost been caught in the perfect storm we've been caught in the pandemic situation which has effectively cost us all our generated income of which probably around 8.5 million a year is potentially at risk that's annualized numbers um and it's going to be very difficult that coupled with inadequate um surety around the future and how we could operate on a sustainable basis so we haven't had sufficient government funding that hasn't been announced thus far the local authority have been unable to provide financial support that could offer us a financial uh, future that is any way sustainable. So unfortunately, we have had to issue notice to the local authority that we'll be terminating the contract mm. and we'll be earning services back to the council. It's a real shame, of course, that it has uh, come to that. And um, let's hope, of course, that the situation um, doesn't uh, pan out any worse than it already uh, has. Um, I have to say, Peter, um, it's a shame that we're just about out of time on the uh, the programme today because it has been a very informative experience having you on to discuss some of these issues. And, you know, I think it would be great to actually catch up in the next few months as to what has gone on in the time between because it's one thing speculating about what may happen in future and thinking about all of the uncertainty and then it's another exactly analyzing what's gone on yeah absolutely absolutely i think that would be it would be really worthwhile doing you know uh, 
focus at the moment is clearly around like, ensuring that we can transfer services and staff back to the local authority in a smooth way as possible. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, for the residents of Peterborough and all our customers, that they can have a relatively smooth transition into a new world. Mm. Let's certainly hope so, uh, Peter, for sure. Um, and most importantly, until we do touch base again um, in future, please do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. Because as we both well know, even though things are slowly beginning to reopen, we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. And there's plenty of time for things to still change. Uh, absolutely. And, and the same message would be reciprocated to yourselves and colleagues. You know, we're a long way to go yet, but we're making progress. We are indeed. And for those tuning into this, do continue to stay home where you can. Do be vigilant because it really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, That was Peter Appleton speaking there, the Chief Executive of Vivacity Culture and Leisure Trust. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Since his retirement from professional cricket, Sir Andrew has become the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. During his days as skipper, however, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. During his tenure, he also chalked up at the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Quite impressive. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know literally all my life 
and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that, that 
just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance. And it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. 
and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job absolutely um and w- with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage 
some of the relationships that I have with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. 
you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.